I need to put that at the top before I ask anything can else. You, can you also you, ask me if my recorder is going in the future? Oh, that's probably a good idea. Sean, are you recording? <laughs> yeah. Sean, are you going to save the file when we're done recording? <laughs> yeah. And I'll, when we're, oh, you, no. You, yeah, we've had some mishaps. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, President, Secretary, and Treasurer of the official Hugh McCracken Fan Club. <laughs> I was wondering how far into the podcast we'd get before we got a Hugh McCracken joke. And, uh, right, the at the <laughs> right at the top. Right at the top. This one's for all the Hugh heads out there. I can stop uh, wondering about that now. Well, I'm co-host Jeremy. How did you wonder how long before we get a Papa Roach reference? Oh well, I was thinking, figuring it'd be when we got to my title. Oh, <laughs> well, I am going to be recreating Yoko Ono's famous action cut piece, but I want to add a little new metal spin to it and. I'm going to call it <laughs> cut my life into pieces. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to wear like the biggest Jinko jeans I can find too. Yeah. It'll be easy to cut. Yeah. And I hopefully won't have to get naked cause they'll be so big. The jeans. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine this is touring like only at art museums, kind of a highbrow type deal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But like small town ones, like. I don't know, the Akron Museum, and I can't even think of another small town. That's not even that small of a town. I'm a horrible person. <laughs> so Akron, Ohio is the smallest town you can think of. Interesting. Let's, let's yes. dive into that. You, you might be a horrible person, Jeremy, but you're a brilliant artist. Thank you. <laughs> I am co-host Peter Cook, author of the forthcoming, compelling, popular music history book, What's Up? What's going on when song lyrics don't quite match the song title? Of course, that title comes from Four Non Blondes' song, What's Up, where they keep repeating what's going on. There's also some other examples like Friend and Lover, Reach Out of the Darkness. They sing Reach Out in the Darkness. Richard Harris, MacArthur Park. What does he say, Taylor, throughout the song? Not MacArthur Park. Uh, yeah, he said. What? <laughs> I think all of us zoned out already, which is maybe a bad omen for this book that you're writing. <laughs> oh, well, it's he says MacArthur's Park. Right, MacArthur's Park. Brenton Wood, Sean, he, the song is called Give Me Little Sign. What does he say throughout the song? Give me a little sign? Some, Some kind, kind of sign. Some kind of sign. Oh, my God. Yeah. Take that out. I can't, sure. <laughs> I can't have that embarrassment. <laughs> Jeremy, sure. cut this you whole guys thing. Didn't know you, you guys didn't know you were getting quizzed. <laughs> Should he <sighs> Otis? Strawberry letter 23. What does he say in the song? 22. Correct. The, the, the song itself is the 23rd letter written in response to the 22nd letter. And, of course, on the album we're talking about today, Yoko Ono, Nobody Sees Me Like You Do. She sings, No One Can See Me Like You Do. Ooh. So we'll, you can look forward to that and learn the story behind all those songs. Can't wait. Yeah. All, all of them? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> well, with us today, returning to the podcast, is a music supervisor and DJ who hosts the Windmills of Your Mind on NTS Radio. Welcome back, Taylor Rowley. Hi. Thanks for having me back. It's about time. It's been nearly six months. Too long. Yeah, we're halfway to to, uh, to Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Our next Christmas episode. Yeah. So that was the last time I was on, I think. It was when we talked a little Brenda Lee with you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what, pray tell, did you bring today? So we are going to um, 
talk about Yoko Ono's 1981 album, Season of Glass. Yes. Released on June 3rd of that year. Oh, coming up on its uh, 42nd anniversary. Yeah, we're, we're, we're right on it as this airs, yeah. So where do we want to start before we talk more about this record? We are going to hear the first song off the record called Goodbye Sadness. All right, let's do that. Yeah, side A, track one. I don't need you anymore I wet my pillow every night But now I saw the light Goodbye, goodbye sadness I don't need you such a great opening song for this record her voice is so expressive on that cut and it's so vulnerable and understated and you can just tell she's really going through a whole lot of emotions going through a whole lot of shit in the process of making this record a tumultuous time and yeah that's just the perfect way to kick it off yeah for those who don't know This was released less than six months after her husband, John Lennon, was murdered right in front of her. So this is, yeah, like immediately in the aftermath of all that. His, the, the, you know, you put this record on knowing that the album cover, we'll just kind of get to this right out the gate. It features a pair of glasses and a, half full or half empty glass of water. Those glasses are John Lennon's, the one, the pair that he was wearing when he was shot and his blood is still spattered all over them. And apparently the company, the record company did not want her, Geffen, the company, they did not want this on the album cover, but she fought for it. This is John. This is what this album's about. This is what's left of John. And so, yeah, it's a heavy record. It's And knowing, you know, anyone that knows, has any inkling of what Yoko's music is generally thought to sound like, you might ex- expect some dark chaos right out the gate. But no, she gives you this sad, contemplative ballad. Yeah, it was not what I was expecting this record. I'll, I'll admit, right out of the gate, I did not know Yoko Ono's music at all, though I feel like it's from the opposite direction of most people who don't listen to Yoko in that I associated it with the Beatles, therefore I was not interested in hearing it because it was related to the Beatles in some way. Right, and you're not necessarily a Beatles hater, you're just a 
uh, indifferent to the Beatles, as we've discussed before. So it makes sense no, that you most... would just, be, uh, by extension, be indifferent to Yoko. Yeah, I mean, kind of, but also I was a Beatles hater, and that was at the time when I enjoyed chaotic experimental music. But now that I'm not so into that music, now I'm open to hearing Yoko Ono, but uh, just thought it sounded different, so I never checked it out. And this was a surprise, and it's a great album. Honestly, this might be the perfect Yoko record to start with from someone in your position or someone in the position of they've just heard nothing but bad reviews of Yoko and assumed that they wouldn't like her music. If anyone out there is willing to give her a fair chance, start here and then explore the rest of the catalog. Yeah, I think she, um, her voice is so angelic on that song Mm -hmm. and through a lot of the songs on this record. I mean, one thing I think people don't, I don't hear people talk about enough is her vocal range. I mean, she can sound, you know, almost childlike in her, and it can be very playful and angelic like we just heard. And then she, I mean, she can, you know, really, really screech. And I think that's the latter is mostly what people think of her as sounding like, but I think that, you know, she just has an incredible um, emotional and like someone else said, expressive vocal range. Yeah. And there's just, endless boring critiques of people saying well she's not a great singer and you know even when she's singing pop songs it's it sounds off but uh to quote friend of the show rich tupika the world is lousy with perfect singers and i think that uh singers like this are oftentimes much more interesting and the influence of her expressive, emotive singing style that's not about just hitting the notes perfectly like a standard rendition, that influence is so strong these days. You think about like just the history of indie rock after this. There's mm-hmm. tons of quote-unquote bad singers who are just so interesting because of their unique approach. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, she paved the way. For yeah, you know, it's really. I feel like it's the '80s and beyond that uh, artists begin to have a following or a level of popularity with non-traditional singing voices. Yeah, I was um, reading that John Lennon, when he heard "Rock Lobster" by the B-52s, he was like, "Oh, this song was totally inspired by Yoko Ono," and it was actually true. Yeah, he was right. He was right. They admitted that that they were totally inspired by her, which is awesome. Yeah. And so that kind of began all of that. Yeah. I was getting, even on this album, there were a few points that I got some strong Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth vibes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sonic Youth were definitely big fans. A direct influence there as well. Yep. Yep. They On Goodbye 20th Century, the experimental covers album that they did, I know they did a Yoko piece on there. Yeah, and she's, you know, she's kind of uh, respected among that elite of 20th century weirdo composers. She comes from that that scene even. Mm-hmm. But we can get into all that when we get there. What, you know, Jeremy, I guess you've you've basically said your background with Yoko Ono. It, it sounds like your your experience is fresh eyes, yeah. fresh ears. <laughs> uh Sean, how about you? What is your background? Yeah, I remember being aware of Yoko's reputation as being an unlistenable artist before I ever heard her music. You know, getting into the Beatles, you just hear about Yoko Ono. You hear all these nasty rumors and stuff. And then, it I don't know, it was probably high school or something when I actually started listening to her a little bit and was kind of surprised at how experimental some of her music got, especially like the early work with John Lennon, you know, the tape loop experimentation on two virgins and all kinds of stuff like that. I started to be like, wow, there's definitely a lot more to this artist than everyone just told me at the beginning. And then I've had this record for a long time. I have also had the record that came after this one for a while. It's all right. I see rainbows from 82. I think those are both just amazing pop records and yeah i i've i've been saying for a very long time that i think record collectors shitting on yoko ono and just talking about how she's terrible and broke up the beatles etc to me those have just been the most boring 
music opinions, record collecting opinions ever. Like, I'm just so sick of people talking shit about Yoko Ono. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with time, the information has come out that, no, she had nothing to do with the Beatles breaking up. It, it Really, it seems that it was finally solidified once people saw the Peter Jackson Get Back documentary more recently. But it, she's also gained a certain amount of respect amongst a lot of people just for pissing off so many people. <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah. So, so much respect for her. She's always fought back against those opinions and just continued making challenging art throughout her entire life. It's very respectable. But while also never, she never fought with like, fought back in, um, you know, where she criticized back. She just always continued just to do with her own thing. Yeah. And, you know, she's an activist and promoting peace and love. And I don't know. So she killed him with kindness pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her resilience and restraint is unbelievable. Yeah. And I'm so happy that I feel like we're getting to the end before we're even starting, but I'm so happy that she, you know, we've finally gotten to a time where I feel like the general consensus is that she's amazing. You know, I don't know if that's just because like the old boomer dudes are dying out or what, but um, young people certainly seem to love her. Yeah. Yeah. Any younger generation that actually listens to her music is going to pretty much instantly be like, oh, I easily recognize the influence that this had on many other yeah. musicians and bands that I love. This is great. You know, it, it really is that, that generational divide of older people have just been writing her off for so long. And the, the criticism like never stopped. Like with this record, you know, we talked about the, the bold statement of the artwork and the label wanting to cancel it. There's just tons of criticisms of people being like, Oh, she's capitalizing off of his death as if like, it wasn't something that actually affected her as a person. Like, as if she didn't have a right to work through a heavy time with art, you know? Oh, and if she had never made anything, if she had done the opposite and didn't make her this record, it would have been like, she's not even grieving, you know? I mean, she couldn't, yeah. well, she couldn't, totally. she would not have been able to win. And if, if like Yoko had been shot and John made a record with like a piece of her clothing covered in blood, everyone would have been, would have been like just praising him for his oh, artistic course. statement. Yeah. I mean, we don't, I mean, the amount of sexism and also racism that was just thrown at her was, is just deplorable. Oh yeah. I'm going to make custom hats and t-shirts that say, if you don't like Yoko Ono, you're racist. And then I'm just going to go to any record <laughs> show in the country and get murdered. That's how I want to go out. Well, yeah, well in, in the spirit of Yoko Ono, <laughs> except that's pretty confrontational. <laughs> I came by Yoko Ono's music, you know, as far as exploring it as uh, something worthwhile through, of all bands, ween when i was a teenager because they remixed one of her songs and played some shows with her their bass player actually their bass player and producer andrew weiss left ween to go tour the world with yoko ono so and they just championed her every opportunity they could they were sean lennon was apparently a fan the son of john lennon and yoko ono sean lennon was a ween fan and somehow that ended up becoming this collaborative relationship between them. And uh, so, it, and then just, just I, I kept hearing that opinion of Yoko, horrible. And everything I read about her and just her life story, I was like, no, this is a really interesting and important artist. Uh, and I, I still feel like I've only begun exploring her music. I've had Fly for a few years, the double album that's highly experimental. That one's, it's, came out in 71 and it's almost like the counterpart to can the krautrock band their album tago mago it sounds like the other mm -hmm. half of that and th i've had this one for about a year i picked it up for eight bucks at the coloma antique mall here in southwest michigan and it's a beautiful album it really surprised me after having spent a lot of time with fly <laughs> to hear this side of yoko and i've heard some of the remix stuff that other people have done of hers in more recent years as well but yeah there's a lot that i still haven't explored Taylor, how about you? How did you uh, come into being intrigued with Yoko's music? Oh, I mean, you know, growing up in the 90s, I feel like 
I was not immune to hearing all of the, you know, hatred for her. Um, and I'm sure I internalized it. So I can't, I, I can't always say that I was like, she's amazing. I definitely parroted the sentiment without even knowing just because it was just what was in the zeitgeist, you know what I mean? And I was young. But um, it wasn't until probably I was like 20 that I, um, I came to really get into her through her films. So I went to see a, an exhibition here um, in LA at, the, at MOCA called WAC. It was a, a art in the feminist revolution uh, exhibit. And um, they showed, they were showing several of her films, including Cut Piece. And I remember just standing there with headphones on in the museum, just like watching Cut Piece. And I mean, I was very, very moved by it. So I got into her that way. And then I bought her book, Grapefruit, which is like, you know, a book of her concept art and loved that. And then just started getting into her music. So yeah, music, her actual music came later for me. I got Approximately Infinite Universe. It's another, I think that's... Is that a double album too? I cannot remember. But anyway, that one's definitely more poppy and I loved it. So then, um, yeah, so I've loved her ever since. Yeah, if you give her the time and probably find the right in point, I, I think there's a Yoko has a lot more to offer than your average person that just writes her off because they've been told to do so. You know, like <laughs> there, there's probably more Yoko fans out there than uh, people realize. You might have a. You might be a Yoko fan. Maybe this episode, we'll you'll find that by the end of this you'll episode. Find your inroad. Yeah. Yeah. While the internet sucks, it's also good. Like if the general public is only hearing the opinions of like a handful of white male music journalists for forty years, and they're all saying she sucks, then the popular opinion is probably going to mirror theirs. But with the internet, different voices from different backgrounds started to emerge, and I think that helped change a lot of people's opinion of her. The reevaluation. Yeah, exactly. Well, how about we play another song before we get into some of Yoko's story? Yeah, so we're going to hear Nobody Sees Me Like You Do, um, which she doesn't actually say in the song. <laughs> <laughs> As established by my forthcoming book, Side A, Track 4. That is my favorite song by her. I love that song. It's so beautiful and it's like so romantic, but so heartbreaking. I was like tearing up when I was listening to it just now. Yeah, that song's an all-timer for sure. That's my favorite on this album and it's just a brilliant pop song all around. Yeah, and all the songs, they're like potent as they are, but you also just knowing the backstory of it makes it like even more 
just heart-wrenching, a lot of these. Okay, you have to figure with this be, being released less than six months after John Lennon's death, like she, this is this was her coping mechanism. Yeah. Working on this record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Yoko wrote all of the music, lyrics, arrangements, and everything on here, right? Yeah, it was uh, co-produced by enemy of I'd buy that for a dollar, Phil Spector. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But uh, Yoko, yeah, Yoko's the the other producer. We we uh, before Phil Spector passed uh, Taylor, we we made a few controversially disparaging <laughs> marks dis- about remarks about the we man. were the first people ever to do so it was amazing <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i uh, cannot imagine those two working together they seem like i just that is just like oil and water but i mean yeah. he produced this record so it must have not have been that bad yeah the the end result uh, speaks for itself i suppose yeah so as i've mentioned to all y'all and um earlier this bio is pretty hefty so try to condense it as much as i can so here we go yoko ono she was born in tokyo in on february 18th 1933 to her mother and father her father was a former classical pianist turned banker and they were quite wealthy his work had him transferring back and forth between the u.s and japan pretty much all of her childhood um she didn't meet him until she was two years old he had been Um, out of the country when she was born. So they moved to, when she was two, she and her mother moved to to San Francisco to meet her father. A year later, they moved back to Japan, and then they moved back to New York. She was in school. She learned piano. um, She she practiced from the age of four until 13. And then they moved to New York City. Then they moved back to Tokyo. It's a lot of that. So, um, but they were, they were, Something that very important happened, you know, and during her childhood, um, which was that World War II was happening and she was in Japan during that time. She was separated, their family was separated from her father. He had been uh, working in, I believe it was in Vietnam and it, he was in a concentration camp in Saigon during World War II. The rest of the families bunkered down in Tokyo. After that, there was rampant starvation. Her family was forced to beg for food while pu- pulling their belongings in a wheelbarrow. And she has said during that period in her life that was when she developed her aggressive attitude and outsider status, her sense of being an outsider. Yeah, and I, I also read that, you know, when they when they're no longer living the comfortable, privileged life, uh-huh. uh, her and her her brother, they when they were you know starving, they would imagine food and meals back and forth t- together as a way of coping during this really difficult and horrific time. And she considered, because so much of her work deals with imagination, uh, she said she feels like that was her first art piece, was her and her brother going back and forth imagining food to each other. Yeah, I saw that too, where she was, they were so hungry, and she was like, let's make up a menu. And so her little brother was like, yes, let's have ice cream first. And then they called it like ice cream menu. And her work, if you read her book, Grapefruit, it's like full of stuff like that. So yeah, so that was like that was obviously a very for many reasons very pivotal point in her life. After then they she remained in Japan um, and then her family relocated to New York. She resumed her studies and um, at 14 she started voice lessons, which may surprise some people. Yeah, she has quite the extensive musical training. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then she went to school, college in Japan for only two semesters, but she was the first woman to enter the philosophy department at that university. She moved to New York in 1952 to join the rest of her family, enrolled in Sarah Lawrence College. In 1956, she left the college to elope with a Japanese composer who was a star in Tokyo's experimental community. His name was Toshi Ichiganagi. I'm not very familiar with him. He was a a student of John Cage. Okay, which makes sense. Yeah, and a a lot of her studying of music in college, she gravitated quickly towards more like avant-garde classical 12-tone stuff. And yeah, there was always a natural inclination towards experimental high art. Yeah, so it's, yes, exactly. So at Sarah Lawrence, she studied poetry with Alistair Reed and music composition with Andre Singer. He's the one that introduced her to the work of John Cage and from what I understand. And then, so she left college 
1957 and became involved with New York City's downtown artist scene in the 60s, which included Fluxus, and that's a loose association of Dada-inspired avant-garde artists. Yeah, they were heavily inspired by Marcel Duchamp, who was still alive at that time. Mm -hmm. And he actually saw her perform, I believe, at least yeah. once. For those not familiar, Marcel Duchamp, his most famous work are these ready-mades where he just takes like everyday objects and presents them as art, most famously a urinal presented yeah. as the fountain. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes sense. Dada. Dada. Dadaists. Yeah. So then she, so yeah, she became involved with this group, Fluxus, and met John, actually met John Cage through that group. In the summer of 1960, she was determined to rent a place to present her work along with the work of other avant-garde artists, which she did. And they used the, it was a, she found a loft in downtown New York, Manhattan, and used to, and used it to host concerts there. So that was, you know, I don't know if anybody was really doing that before then. Yeah, there's a, she was involved with Lamont Young, who was a big inspiration on the Velvet Underground's drone aspect of their music and John Cale all that and uh, apparently she was very upset that lamont young often would receive all the attention for like organizing stuff when it was her doing it oh sounds familiar <laughs> <laughs> um seems like a pattern in her life but yeah so she you know years and years and years before she met john lennon i mean almost a well several years but she met uh she had her first major public performance at carnegie hall so you know for everybody that was like she wouldn't be anybody except for John Lennon. I mean, she was definitely something, something before then. She was at Carnegie Hall. I know. That's like top of the mountain. I know. <laughs> so people are nuts. To be fair, to, it was the uh, the smaller venue at Carnegie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not wow. trying to undermine okay. the point. <laughs> I'm not trying to undermine the point. <laughs> I'm not that guy on this Yoko podcast. <laughs> So she and her first husband filed for divorce in 62. She then married her second husband, which was then annulled in 1963, but not before she, they had a child together, a daughter named Kyoko, who basically was take, taken from her. And she, I think when she was a small child from, uh, by her father, and she was never allowed to see her again until like 1998, which is crazy. So she's already yeah. experiencing a lot of tragedy and she's written a lot of uh, several songs about Kyoko. Yeah, Yoko mentions Kyoko at the beginning of the Happy Christmas War is Over mm -hmm. song, the very popular yeah. Christmas song by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Yeah, and that song is, uh, what's that called? Don't worry, Kyoko, Mommy's Only Looking for Your Hand in the Snow. Um, that was written about her, obviously, um, and several other songs. So yeah, so even before John passed away or was murdered, uh, she, you know, she had had someone that was very close to her you know, take, you know, taken from her. So that seems to be sort of like a, a tragic theme in her life. Then she had a second engagement at Carnegie Hall in 1965. That's where she debuted Cut Piece, which is legendary. If any, I'm sure yeah. it's on YouTube. If you have not seen it, you must. It's, yeah, should we in brief explain what that is? So Cut Piece is a performance art, you know, performance piece. And she sits on a stage and she, with a pair, you know, fully closed, with a pair of scissors and she invites people to come up and cut pieces of her clothing off while well, she she poses no resistance to it whatsoever she's just impassively sitting there and it was filmed by the Maisels brothers actually if you know who the Maisels are who are they <laughs> they're a, a, a documentarian um duo brothers and they did give me shelter gray gardens yeah so they're oh, like yeah. pretty you know pretty legendary but they filmed it but uh so yeah so the whole film is just people coming on stage and cutting pieces of her clothes off and people start very you know kind of timidly cutting off like a little bit of the sleeve but then becoming more and more emboldened and um cut you know just cutting larger pieces of the clothing off cutting it you know like cutting her bra straps off until eventually she's just sitting there clothesless um but like what's what's really it's just very affecting because she's just sitting there with you know posing no resistance to all this is happening to her and and she said the intention was to show that you can take as much as you want but i'm not going to give it to you yeah yeah the, it, a commentary on both the male gaze as well as the american bombing of japan apparently mm -hmm. it kind of is, is meant to represent both 
Yeah. She continued to, you know, be very, very active as an artist um, until she met John Lennon, until enduring when she met John Lennon in November of 1966 um, at one of her own art exhibits. That's where uh, they were introduced by the gallery owner of where she was having the uh, exhibit. And one of her pieces, ceiling painting, yes painting, had a ladder painted white with a magnifying glass at the top. When Lenin climbed the ladder, he looked through the magnifying glass and was able to read the word yes, which was written in miniature. He greatly enjoyed this experience. And yeah, so I guess he became intrigued with her after that. The the one thing I thought was interesting, the thing that struck him about that art piece that kind of started their relationship is he felt like all of the other avant-garde artists of the time that he had seen the work of, that it generally there was a sense of nihilism to it. And he was really intrigued by someone doing experimental art with a positive message, like the, the whole thing building up to just reading the word yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A symbol for her being the positive influence on his life that he desperately needed. <laughs> if you know anything about John Lennon, he was kind of a mess. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, was, he was a downer. <laughs> for sure. So yeah, so then they became they became friends. They had a correspondence that went on for a couple years. And then in 68, his wife was on holiday um, and he invited her to visit their home while she was gone. And they spent the night recording a selection of avant-garde tape loops, which became Unfinished Music Number 1, Two Virgins. Yep. And then Cynthia Lennon came home, found them, and that was pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, apparently, you know, she... Cynthia Lennon, John Lennon's wife at the time, came home to to find Yoko in her bathrobe. And, right. And uh, John Lennon was like, oh, hi, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm John Lennon. So, right. you know, this is what I do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not doesn't reflect well on either of them. But what are you going to do? So, yeah. So there, <laughs> we're up until that point, And I don't know how much more we want to talk about up until when this record comes out. Yeah, there's so much that we could get into. Yeah, so I feel like we should probably just... Let's just go to another track. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, and we're going to go to what I would say is probably the most avant-garde track on the album. It's still pretty accessible, though. It's called No, 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 Side B, Track 3. Yeah, that track is jarring. It begins with those gunshots, four gunshots, which is what killed John Lennon, and then Yoko screaming. Yeah. This kind of almost like what I expected the album to begin with when I first put it on. 
but it's on and it's on here and i think you would expect something along these lines at some point to surface yeah, and you can draw a straight line from that to Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. Totally. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. The dissonant guitar. Yeah. What's so crazy is that that was the first single from that record. It's like not the other ones that we just heard that were super pretty and, you know, much more palatable. Like, this is the one, this is the song that she chose. I mean, I, I'm sure she chose it to be the single. For some reason, the single version is longer than the album version, which is seems like very that. unusual. Um, but I'm not, I can't recall, Peter, maybe you know, if um, the record label had made her edit out the gunshots for the single. I don't know offhand whether or not they're present on the single. I haven't heard that version. Yeah. I can imagine there were a lot of things about this album yeah. the record label was right. apprehensive about. But but I, I really love that song, um, even though the other ones are definitely more in my, you know, I like listening to them more. This song, I love that she she sounds really angry, you know? So it's, it's she's like exploring the range of emotions of grief um, yeah. on this record. And that was a, you know, that song yeah. is super angry. And, and the often like conflicting emotions yeah. that come with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something interesting I noted about that song that was, you know, this is 1981 that this is released. And in 2008, a remix of that song hit number one on the U.S. dance club charts. And that's one of one of over a dozen songs of Yoko Ono since the early 2000s that has hit number one on the dance club charts wow. in the form of remixes. This became a very common thing for, for her to be at the top of those charts and i guess she when th- this first started happening pe- you know people asking to remix uh songs of hers into these dance songs she was very against it and especially you know some of these tracks that she had recorded in this in this grieving period in her life mm-hmm. she you know it's just like no that, no 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 uh but for whatever reason she, with time, became uh, more accepting of the idea and definitely did not regret it. She thought it was really entertaining to see her name right next to people like Lady Gaga <laughs> right. on the charts, <laughs> <laughs> and who she said she respected. You know, mm-hmm. like she she was happy to this, this another weird random thing in her life <laughs> of her recognition. Yeah, in so, December of 2016, Billboard named her the. 11th most successful dance club artist of all time. Wow. <laughs> Yoko Ono. Yeah. Huh. You guys know when you're in the club and that fresh Yoko banger just comes on. <laughs> Everyone sets down their drink yep. and gets right to the dance floor. That's what happens. You guys want to hear a little bit about the players on this album? Sure. Well, it's probably no surprise that many of them had appeared on the John Lennon Yoko Ono collaborative album Double Fantasy that had been released in November of 1980, just a few weeks before Lennon's murder. Guitars, we have Hugh McCracken, mentioned at the top of the... My dude, Hugh. (laughs) Your dude, Hugh. He was a New York session guitarist. Uh, He's on so many things that I'm just going to mention. A few highlights that people would know. Eric Carmen, All By Myself. Steely Dan, Hey 19, and Van Morrison, Brown Eyed Girl. Those are all Hugh McCracken on the guitar on those. Also on guitar, Earl Slick. He had replaced Mick Ronson on David Bowie's Diamond Dogs tour and then played lead guitar on both the Young Americans album and Station to Station. Pretty big Bowie records. Also had worked on Double Fantasy. Uh, On the guitar on No, No, No that we just heard and Toy Boat, which is the last song we're going to feature, uh, that was a guy named Tony Davilio. He's also on keys throughout the album, and he had done the horn arrangements on Double Fantasy. So he had he had worked with Lennon and Ono on that as well. Uh, another keyboardist on this is George Small. He is a New York session musician as well and had played keys and piano on Double Fantasy. He'd also worked with Carl Perkins, Graham Parker, and Eric Clapton, to name just a few, on the bass. We have Mr. Tony Levin of King Crimson, who was also Taylor. What album was he on that you have been on and talked about before? 
Would it have been a Roach's record? Yes. Yep, because that was produced by Robert Fripp from King Crimson. So Tony Levin was the bass on the Roaches self-titled as well. On drums, we have Andy Newmark. He was on many of Carly Simon's albums in the 70s. He was also on the Sly and the Family Stone album Fresh, on some George Harrison albums, and, of course, he was on Double Fantasy. On vibraphone and percussion, we have David Friedman. He had worked with Wayne Shorter, Hubert Laws, Chet Baker, mainly jazz musicians, but he'd also worked with people like Tim Buckley, Grace Slick, and Billy Joel. And uh, the other person credited on percussion is Arthur Jenkins Jr., who had, this is this was an interesting connection to a previous episode, he had worked as musical director and accompanist for Johnny Nash. Nice. Right, because he co-owned JAD Records with Johnny Nash. He was the... Uh... J in J-A-D? I would imagine it was the last... No. Wait. No, it was the first name. <laughs> J for Johnny, A for Arthur, and D for Danny Sims. Nice, you pulled it out. Yeah, figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> He'd also worked a lot with Ralph McDonald. The more I learned, Ralph McDonald was like this empire unto himself. <laughs> and Arthur Jenkins Jr. was brought to the attention of John Lennon and Yoko Ono by the way of May Pang, which is a whole other oh lord rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, we could we could go into that. But she worked as their personal assistant and production coordinator, and later Lennon at the basically the insistence of Ono had an affair with May Pang while they were separated. But yeah, so Arthur Jenkins worked on a number of albums for John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I think that's enough talk about the players. There's some saxophonists mm-hmm. on here. Of course, the most noteworthy being Michael Brecker and uh, Tuba, Howard Johnson, legendary jazz player. But uh, yeah, that's just some of the people making these sounds for Yoko on this album. Cool. And now we have almost no time left to cover the rest of Yoko's <laughs> life. Oh my gosh. I also wanted to mention, though, we didn't even talk about the single that was released, what was it, six weeks after John Lennon died, called Walking on Thin Ice. That wasn't on this album, but it should have been. They were working on that the night he he was shot. Yeah, like they were walking home from the recording studio, recording this song. They were walking on thin ice, yep, that was the song they were working on the night John Lennon was shot. There's just so much of this music that's wrapped around his death. It's crazy. Yeah, that was actually one of the songs that people first asked to remix. And that was one of the reasons she was just like, no, that's a very important song to me. Yeah. Well, Sean. Yeah. Did you have some time to consider some recommended similar albums to this one? I sure did. I'm ready. I've been waiting for this question the whole episode. Lay it on us. So as we mentioned, part of uh, the catalyst for recording this record was John heard the B-52s and was like, oh, Yoko Ono's sound is popular now. Let's get her in the studio, put out a record, put her on top. The other artist he heard around this time that he thought was obviously influenced by Yoko Ono was Lena Lovich, and I'm recommending her album Flex from 1979. You can definitely hear that kind of hard edge new wave sound going on vocal experimentations there's a lot of parallel to the work of yoko ono there it's a great record yeah and i remember her albums are always priced pretty cheaply very cheap next one previously featured artist material i'm recommending the album they did before the one that we did an episode on the record is called memory serves came out in 1981 it's a little bit more avant-garde. It's got Sonny Chirac on guitar, but it's still messing around in that weird, you know, mix between no wave punk and free jazz and experimental. It's a great record. Another one, kind of an obvious choice, I would say, is Laurie Anderson's Big Science from 1982. Totally. <laughs> and then special bonus fourth suggestion another previously featured record cindy lopper she's so unusual from 1983 
another famous artist that just got so much flack for her weird voice and just her general attitude. Fellow icon. Yeah. Yeah. On that album, I think it's the last track. She gets a bit Yoko with her vocalizations. Mm -hmm. Taylor, do you have any further suggestions Um, for hmm. further listening? I don't. I mean, other than Sonic Youth. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that Sonic Youth's first record was only a year after this one. So they oh, were that's weird to think about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were definitely listening to Yoko and understanding Yoko from the avant garde background because they were all into that stuff as, you know, kids coming up in the no wave avant garde classical minimalist scene. It's funny to think that Sonic Youth embraced both Yoko Ono and Madonna. And for many years, I have made the comparison of Yoko Ono marrying John Lennon to being if KG Hino had married Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for those not familiar, he's a far out experimental Japanese musician, a true, like a true artist, mm -hmm. just like Yoko Ono, like a born artist who works in sound largely and other mediums. All right. Well, Taylor, mm -hmm. how about you tell us uh, how people can find the windmills of your mind or anything else that you uh, might be up to right now? Sure. You can listen to my radio show, which is called The Windmills of Your Mind, on NTS Radio um, every other week. Every other Thursday from noon to 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. But it's also archived on the NTS website and my own website, windmillsofyourmind.org, uh, usually within the next couple days after it airs. Yeah, I've noticed it's it's been nice having it more frequent of late because it used to be just once a month, right? Yeah, so now, yeah, it's every other week, which has, I mean, I, I used to do a radio show every week for like almost two decades. So I mean, I'm used to it, but... um. I don't know. Keeping up with, I try not to play the same artist very often. So, keeping up with all the music I need to play is, is can be difficult, but it's fun. Um. So yeah, you can find it there. Yeah, you're deep down the rabbit hole. With, I feel like when I listen to your show, like maybe one artist is like someone I've even heard of, and you're just you're you know so much more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope, you know, that you like it, even if you don't. I, I do don't like anybody. it. Yeah. You find good stuff. Okay. It's it, There There were, have been some really great discoveries through there recently. Cool. Yeah. So thanks for listening. And yeah, so that's where you can find it. And as far as everything else, um, I mean, so this is airing on June 13th. That week is uh, the week of Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> if you happen to be in New York during that week, you can see two films I worked on. I music supervised. One is called The Graduates, directed by Hannah Peterson. And the other one is called Somewhere Quiet by Olivia West Lloyd. But yeah, that's only if you happen to be in New York. <laughs> well, some of our listeners probably will be. Yeah. Get with it, people. Yeah. And oh my gosh, you guys. So my dream is coming true and I'm music supervising a Christmas movie. <gasps> as 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 discussed on your I know. previous appearance. I know. It was foretold. I know. Exactly. I've been like so excited to tell you. <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about it or is it like, like the plot? Now? I won't tell you anything about the plot. Anything. But um anything. I mean like finding, you know, getting to put in like, you know, pretty I wouldn't say obscure, but you know, off beaten Christmas music has been great. Like I'm using um I don't know if you guys know the song Santa Claus by the Sonics. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm using yeah. that during like a dance scene and yeah. So it's been super fun. And then I was like, did I really find my calling in this? But I don't know. It's not a, it's not a, like a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's like a dark comedy. So. <laughs> See, I, I was hoping that you're, you know, like you'll just totally reinvent the Christmas music game when this one gets <laughs> <Right>. big. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's about it. Well, you're, there's always something you have going on that sounds exciting and intriguing. So, you know, and of course we're all anticipating that third season of reservation dogs. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and you know, you haven't been on since you, uh, did beef on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that came out. Yeah. A couple months ago. 
Did you guys all watch it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm the only one who hasn't yet. <laughs> it stars Kalamazoo's own Stephen Young. I know. I think I've gotten more recommendations for that show than any show in quite a while. So it's uh, it's top of my list, but it's NBA playoff season. So, you know, it is <laughs> something to look forward to. Well, there is a basketball story arc in it. So, oh, nice. It's just <laughs> now you've won him over. <laughs> I mean, I didn't need to be won over. It's just a matter of when I'm watching it. Totally. All right. Well, is there anything else uh, you wanted to plug, Taylor? Nope, that's it. Any final thoughts from, I mean, you know, yeah, where do we, how do we wrap up <laughs> Yoko Ono's life here? <laughs> she's still with us. She's 90, what, she's 92? Uh, 90 even, I believe. 90 even. Yeah, so. Yeah, 1933 you know, to 2023. Has outlived a lot of her critics and has seen, you know, new audiences appreciate her and her work as yep. she and she'll Very... definitely listen to this episode and know that <laughs> right. her career has come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> She's finally gotten her flowers. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, so I'm 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 very very happy that she's um still around to see, you know, to receive the respect that she very rightfully deserves. Oh yeah. And it's it, it's cool to have seen uh Sean Lennon also develop into a musician i heard an interview with him where he said people would uh, you know as he, his music became more popular people would say to him oh you really you inherited your musical gift from your father and he's like you know my father didn't really teach me anything he i was five years old mm -hmm. when he died it was my mother who taught me music and production engineering all that stuff she's responsible for the musician that i am today so yeah yeah i liked his solo record the one that came out in 98 i remember listening to it way back then into the sun i don't know if you guys remember that one i don't know if i've heard that one i've i've kind of checked out here and there and of course he's and more recently he's done stuff with less claypool and i haven't really spent a lot of time with that stuff but i've definitely liked uh, some of his stuff that i've heard yeah and then he played with um chibo motto who i was like a huge fan of back in the day yep <laughs> yep yep and they've done some remixes of yoko's yep. work too as have many there's a lot of very popular artists you know like really hip artists who have remixed her music but i will we'll keep that up for the audience to explore more <laughs> well, <laughs> well i will say that it's like there is a compilation that came out in 2007 called yes i am yes i'm a witch and it's all yeah. uh remixes of her stuff by like I mean, that's almost 20 years old now, but it's like Peaches, La Tigra, Cat Power, yeah. you know, so it's it's very good. I think it holds up. So uh, does it start there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a follow up in the mid 2010s called Yes, I'm a Witch 2. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, we were going to finish up the episode with Toy Boat, correct, Taylor? Yes. It's another pretty one. Yeah, we, we, we're going out on a, a pretty one here. As mentioned, this one features the guitar work of Tony DeVilio as well. Well, that is it for this installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Thank you for listening. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Taylor Rowley. Waiting for